Hello everybody and welcome to the 153rd edition of the Frank and Stan chat and uh, I'm really delighted those of you watching on the video um, will notice that uh, we have a guest uh, Dr Rebecca Lawton. Hello Rebecca. Morning. Morning. Actually just to say we've never actually met have we? Uh, not have in we? the real day. Possibly in Blackpool. Ah right okay but actually I, mean, I just want to one of the things is when we're not friends with sort of just you know this is something that actually one of the great things about the guests is sometimes uh, Stan and I will sort of read something or hear about something and then we reach out to the guest and uh, they're very keen to come and chat about stuff you know so that's why we're here this morning so uh, we'll get on to Rebecca's uh, research uh, shortly but we'll ask Stan Stan I thought you were going to be in North Wales today well I certainly expected to be um, and what's caught my eye this week is the lack of internet signal, lack of 4G signal, if you happen to be staying in certain parts of North Wales, um, to the point that, that it was impossible to use anything that, that required. So I couldn't have done a Zoom meeting. I couldn't pay people's wages yesterday when, when they were due. Uh, so eventually we had to come home and... It it just I, I I thought maybe it was just our equipment in the caravan that wasn't good enough, so I did a trawl outside, <laughs> wandering around with my phone. <laughs> um, and the best signal I could get um, over the the three or four days I was there was something like two point five three megabits megabytes per second, which isn't fast enough to do a zoom, isn't fast enough to download really anything, mm. and it made me think. The number of times we've talked about poverty and, and children not having access to IT. And I almost always thought the answer was pay for pay for it. You know, let, let's let's make sure the internet's free for, for children um to access. But actually it turns out that the infrastructure isn't there anyway. Uh, and and it's not until you, you get into a position like that, if you're very fortunate like I am where I live where we've got uh, fibre into the house and, you know, you can virtually guarantee any kind of speed and you go somewhere where suddenly there's none. It, it's like a utility. It's like not having water or electricity. It's it's, And it struck me as maybe, you know, I'd assumed there was a way of fixing it that was easy, um, but there isn't. And I even looked at having a cable direct into the into the caravan. Um, but then when I checked the speeds that they were offering, it was a maximum of six. And you think that's it's not it's not workable. That. So how are the industries around there operating if that's the best they can get? Yeah, it's interesting because um, I've spoken before about the work that um, I, I've seen in Scotland in the borders um, where they decided that it, it, it was crucial for the regeneration and the economic development of that area, which is you know, a few small market towns and predominantly a rural community, that they were never going to attract um, businesses that needed digital capability, while connectivity and training of staff and, and families and children was so poor. So they, they invested heavily in ensuring that places like Kelso, Hoyk, you know, the connectivity to those places was improved, but also as part of a sort of program around digital education, 
they basically gave everybody from year two onwards a digital device which they could use at home, which then meant they needed to improve the rural connectivity as well. So they got to the point where in many rural communities, the rural connection is better than it is in some of the small market towns because they're still relying on the old infrastructure. And and in you know, it, it's this sort of lack of ambition, I feel. It's, it's probably the fact the government's got no money left, you know, but but actually it's just that vision about how you where you want it to go and, and how you want it to look. And so in Blackpool we've we've got schools that are part of this connecting the classroom. So they've got in some cases ten gigabytes going into the school, but actually they haven't got the devices now. You know, and the children haven't got those devices to take home with them even if they had decent connectivity at home, um, you know, and, and, and if the future is digital, um, every job's going to require some digital capability, you know, it's going to be the poor members of our society that are going to suffer again. Um, what was good there, Frank, is while you were doing that, there was a little dip in your signal. So. <laughs> as, if, as if on purpose. <laughs> we're meant to have, we have Virgin here. We're meant to have, I'm paying for sort of a super, fast whatever it may be but uh yeah it's uh but again it's it's into the house may be fine but actually we've got six people using the devices probably at the moment in the in the house you know uh, there's a limit to how you know and if they're all downloading stuff there's a limit to how much you can cope with so that's what's caught your eye isn't it you did you did it two in one yeah <laughs> yeah it's 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 a very depressing it, it it's that sense of reality i think because previously I'd, I'd had a good thing, good enough to to do Zoom and stuff, and assume that, therefore that that was possible anywhere, and clearly it isn't. It's not. No, we're lucky when we have a, a static caravan in North Wales, and we're we're high up on the edge of a mountain, so we have a decent signal because of that. Um, but if you get to one part of the site, you you lose the signal completely, you know. But we're just fortunate to be in a good position where we are. Anyway. Um, Rebecca, thank you for joining us. Do you want to just introduce yourself to those who may not know you? Um, yeah, can do. Um, I currently work for a large group of independent special schools. So um, we have uh, more than 60 schools from uh, Southampton right up to Scotland. We, we cover the whole of the UK and we look after children with uh, autism diagnoses and SCMH mental health trauma backgrounds. Um, so it's really interesting, really rewarding. Um, and some how big are those are, schools then? Are they sort of small settings or are they sort of some of them? Sort predominantly, of- yeah, predominantly smaller settings. I think um, the average is probably maybe 30 children in a school, right. but we do yeah. have some large campus settings that are residential where the children live with us um, that do over 100 children um, of all ages. But it's it's a really different industry. I've, I've come from mainstream, yeah. um, then went to work for Ofsted, then went to work for um, Liverpool Local Authority. So now back with schools and now back where the children are. It's, it's you know, this is this is the fun bit. <laughs> How easy is it to recruit then? Because we've been talking the last couple of weeks about recruiting problems. How easy is it? Well, to- we have a kind of, we have a secret weapon really in that we offer four day week. Oh, wow. so we pay for five days and you work for which has done absolutely wonders for our staff mental health, for our staff well-being, for their resilience to cope with these you know more challenging children um, on a week to week basis. And we have a lot of 
Uh, we do things like alternative provision where they go horse riding or rock climbing. So we can work that into the timetable and plan for these four day cycles, um, probably better than a mainstream could. Right. Um, but that's I mean, it, it's it's an issue. Recruitment is always an issue. But actually, we've found that that's that's turned the dial for us, really, more than anything well, else. Rebecca, you're coming back to talk about that. Because that's not the reason why. <laughs> but actually, that in itself would be well worth a, a 30 minute chat about how that's working out. Um, I mean, one of the things I think I connected with you because I, I I was aware of your, um, well, your dissertation. Is it called a thesis or whatever it's called? You can call it however you like. That sounds really posh. You can call it all of those things. It's, okay. yeah, it's, my, it's my doctoral um, dissertation. Yeah. yeah. And do you want to just explain what that was about because i think it's got some really important sort of implications for the future do you want to just sort of explain briefly yeah i mean it it came from um i was working in liverpool across um 20 or 30 schools that i was prepping for inspection and there was a real um there was a head teacher feeling that inspection reports were all the same and i was looking for something to say yes it is no it isn't what's what because there wasn't anything out there that, that had looked at it so I used a piece of software that um, universities use for plagiarism and ran a whole year's worth of, of reports through so that I could definitively say, yes, they are. or No, they're not. And it turns out that they're very, very similar. <laughs> so I was like, that's interesting. So I looked into that a bit more and um, there's patterns of similarity. So some of them do huge blocks. So the entire um, behavioral section is almost identical from one report to another. There are patterns of self-citation where one inspector uses the exact same phrases and the exact same paragraphs and bullet points over and over again in multiple reports. And there is a thing that I've called template writing where because of the nature of the report, they have to use certain sentences. So it will say something like, the children with special needs and disabilities are above average, below average and the only bit of the sentence that differs from one report to another is the last two or three words of the sentence so actually they are very similar so the head teachers were right they did feel similar because they were similar um but then the question is um so does it matter well i suppose just before you get onto that i suppose it also makes you feel as though it's a bit of a production line the process of inspection you know in fact the the goal is to get this sort of sentence so i then need to do this bit in order to get the evidence to make that so it's not just the report is it it, it probably emphasizes a little bit of predictability about about yeah. how inspections conducted yeah the, the report's very much the kind of the end point of that formula of inspection so you have to look at english you have to say something about reading so therefore, the sentence that you're allowed to say, because you've only got a limited number of words, is going to be roughly this kind of sentence. So the report's kind of the the end point of that structured formula of inspection. And we've, if you've done multiple inspections, you'll know they are similar. We do similar activities. We all there's a standardization of what good is supposed to be. So therefore, the activities you would expect to become standardized for equity, all that kind of stuff. So. So it was over 50%, I think, wasn't it, of the report? Of of every report in 2017 for primary schools. That's so right. is, that, is that using the same template as they're using now? You know? it's No, it's the old um, template. It's not varied um, drastically, but it's. I had to pick a year where there was there was no change in chief inspector, okay, so yeah. that, because sometimes that changes what goes in. <laughs> yeah. I had to, um, we had to 
trim it down so that I couldn't do secondary and primary because they have six form sections, earlier sections. So it, I was trying to get it to a, if they all are this template roughly, then how similar are they? Because otherwise you'd have your variants for having a sixth form or not having a sixth form. You'd have your variants for having an earliers or not having an earliers. So I'd, I'd trimmed it, but it was still, I think it was nearly 1500 reports in that, in that year that were more than half identical with at least one other report. So, oh, wow. So is that why you focus then even further on primary mathematics in order to just narrow it right down? Yeah, well, then then the question was, so if they're all similar, does it matter? Really, is you know, so if, if we know that inspection is a, is a repeated activity and they are similar activities, well, of course, they're going to be similar. doesn't really matter as long as, as it, it captures your score. So I looked at um, which bit was the most unique, which ended up being the area for improvement section, which I think is really interesting because that's the bit that schools then focus on, hmm. say, Okay, well, what are they going to come back and inspect me against the next time? And if they told me I need to look at behaviour, maths and reading, well, then my improvement plan for the next two years is going to be maths and reading. And, and <laughs> So I, I I tested it out with a couple of my heads and they were like, well, of course, those are the things that we're, we're targeting because they're going to come back and ask me about those things. So, so, so I thought, well, in that case, if the area for improvement is the most unique section, so that's the most bespoke to you as a school, so that means the most to you as a, as a head teacher, does what they say in that area for improvement then have any impact on on your outcomes for children? And because we we'd narrowed it down to primary schools so that they were the same kind of report, we have a measure for primary school success in in mathematics that is standardised and national in in the SATs tests. Mm. Um, so I then compared those schools who'd been told to improve mathematics against their SAT scores pre-inspection, the year of inspection, and in the years following inspection. And if you were told to improve mathematics your mathematics results were seven times better than national improvement. So if nationally we improved by 0.1, you improved by 0.7. Right. right. So there was, a, there was a big discrepancy between those schools who'd been told to improve mathematics and those t- schools who'd been told to improve reading just stayed exactly at national average or, you know, thereabouts, given mm. variance. Oh, gosh. I mean, so were I suppose the emphasis here is, was there anything within the specific nature of the um, – if you, it, they wouldn't just say improve mathematics, would they? They'd say improve something, something about mathematics or yes. whatever. Was there that, something in yeah. that element? So, well, that's where I went back to the how similar are they? Because if they're all being told just improve mathematics, then that's the phrase that's the important phrase. But actually, they were using terminology that was very SAT specific. So they'd use phrases like problem solving, reasoning, calculation, things that are very obviously components of the SATs testing mechanism. And I can't dig into it to a level where I can say if you were told to improve calculation, you improved calculation to that point. But if they used SAT specific terminology in the area for improvement, those are the schools that had the biggest impact on their outcomes following inspection. So generic maths had some improvement, specific maths linked to SATs, significant. So it it kind of had a a compiling effect. Right. And and of course, over time, uh, um, if if the focus for those um, areas of improvement are core areas like reading, phonics, mathematics, 
Um, I don't know where writing's gone in all of this. It does seem to have, dis- well, certainly nowadays, seems to have disappeared off the planet. But if those elements are the ones that are identified, then in effect, you've got a unconscious, let's just say, narrowing of the focus of improvement areas, haven't you, within the curriculum? Because these then become your big hitting items. You know, um, we're not that. We, we're, we're interested in art. Yes, of course we are, music. But actually, these are the ones that we, they're going to test us on next Yeah, time. these are the things we're going to be measured against. And one of the kind of arguments in, in my defence was, does, does that focus on mathematics mean their reading scores reduced? That's a whole other PhD's worth of <laughs> research to do, but I really hope somebody does it because actually that's just as important. Yes, because it's whack-a-mole, isn't it? Is it something that the school had already recognised? If the results the previous year weren't good, was that something? Well, I'm thinking. Ah, no, it, it wasn't necessarily. No, it wasn't necessarily that their math scores weren't okay. You know, some of those people right. who taught improved mathematics were already at national average. Um, I'm just wondering whether the inspector was pointed that way because the school's development plan said these are our targets for improvement. You know, we need yeah. to improve maths because it's a, it's a giveaway for an inspector then to say that yes, you do need to improve. And it's easy then for them to say, and of course, the school have identified this area requiring as an area requiring improvement, which is a bit of a soft sort of landing, isn't it, for the judgment? Um, Did you find any differences? Because I know looking at the research, you looked at different types of inspectors, different types of groupings, I think. Did you find? Yeah, that was. That was the initial assumption that there would be because we just moved to the regional model, you know, where they kind of went to we'll inspect in the northeast or the northwest. We, they just moved to that. Um, and I was fully expecting there to be a, a language. I, I was interested. It was a discourse analysis. I was interested in the language. And I thought, well, maybe there's a way of saying it in the northwest that's different to in the southeast. And there'll be regional variances of terminology. Not the case at all. There is an Ofsted voice that is upheld across the country <laughs> to a, an impressive degree. The voice of the inspectorate overrides regional variances. It takes over. There's no variance between male and female inspectors, single inspectors and large groups, six, seven inspectors. The Ofsted voice is, is paramount in every single one. So the, the report QA system very much does its job upholding that voice of the inspectorate over the voice of the individual inspector. Yeah. It's funny when we started stan reports were somewhere in the region of i don't know 40 pages 50 pages yeah um and what we've what we're down to now is i think six five six pages um uh, and so since you did that research rebecca in 2017 i suspect that the issue i'm, I'm not well i predict let's have a <laughs> prediction that it may have got worse it's likely because yeah. the, the shorter reports were the most duplicated and the longer, you know, your inadequate reports that was that were longer by, you know, double the word count were slightly more unique, but their areas for improvement were very bland and generic. Right. Improve behaviour, improve leadership, because they had so much to do that they they had broad yeah. brush strokes. Yeah. I suppose at the end of the day, I mean not I'm not feeling sorry for an inspector. Um uh, although perhaps I ought to, but you know, you're, you're programmed, and you, you'll know this as having done Ofsted inspections. You're programmed very tightly in terms of the turnaround that you have, you know. And uh, 
And I know that uh, colleagues who have led inspections who then have a complaint about an inspection, say, two or three weeks before, then have all the burden of that responsibility, which, you know, then eats into the time that you thought you had to write the report. So it's probably quite tempting to, you know, where you've got perhaps an uncontroversial inspection, it's a good school, you know, you're writing positive stuff. It's it's perhaps easy just to either consciously or unconsciously just draft in stuff that just gets it over the line, you know. Yeah. And, and my, my issue is with the current one is the opening paragraph doesn't reflect the <laughs> overall judgment in in any way sense of because mm. it's a, in most of them even the schools that have been branded inadequate it sounds like a great school where children are happy and the staff are doing the best by them and the parents are happy oh and by the way it's now inadequate yeah i mean uh, do you, do, uh, it, i'm just thinking of rebecca are, are your schools part of the independent are they independent schools they are, but we are um, Ofsted. But I'm just wondering, is there any difference coming from where you were in terms of it being the maintained sector or the academy sector into the independent? Is there any sort of difference? I'm not familiar now. Not with... really. Not not so much. It's it's um, it's a very, very similar report, right, right. really. Um, we just get a little bit more colour because the things that are happening in the in the independent special schools, the horse riding, you know, the swimming, yeah, yeah, climbing. Yeah. Yeah to get a mention of that in because it's a critical part of what the children are doing. I mean, we've got three that are working farms, which deserve a mention in in what the children are doing on a day-to-day basis. So ours are slightly more unique than a mainstream one, but it's still a very limited word count. It's a very swift photograph of who we are. Now that your, your research, because I've written it down here, um, is an exploration of language in Ofsted reports and, and the influence on school improvement in mathematics in primary schools. So I will put a link to your research at the end of this video um, so that if anybody wants to have a look at it, um, it's, it is, a, as, as I say, I've probably read it more than most, but I, yeah. I find it, a, it, it, it is fascinating because it, it gives an insight as to how inspections could be conducted in the future. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I'd urge you to have a look at it now. Stan's done what's caught his eye. What's caught your eye this week, Rebecca? Well, I had a uh, an article this week that was really quite disturbing, which was about the funding for uh, special schools, so maintained special schools. There was an article in Schools Week that had um, asked 100 schools about their budget. And what's happened is that the funding allowance, although it's gone up, it sits with an LA for special schools, so they've not necessarily made it to the school. And even within that, the funding for teachers' salaries, so the increases that have been budgeted in, special schools haven't been included in that calculation at all. So the special schools are being hit by salary increases and not necessarily by having the adjusted budget because the LAs are using them in different ways and are choosing to to keep hold of that money for different priorities, which is fine. But it means that those special schools in the maintained sector that are already struggling are having huge in-year deficits and it's just going to have such a massive impact on those children and those staff it's yeah it's also really worrying in terms of maintained there's still that sort of local authority oversight isn't there so but actually i wonder then about those uh, that have joined a trust an academy trust and how that's being managed because um that in a sense feels to me a slightly sort of different arrangement um so it'd be interesting to see how, how that's playing out as to um, 
you know, because in effect, those multi-academy trusts are not getting that local authority lump sum, you know, in the way that uh, the LAs are. Yeah, it's, it's a real concern. And it's, there's so many more children coming into special than we've ever had before. To have that as, as the least funded yeah. part just feels... How do you feel? I mean, how do you feel then about the government's send review and where it's heading? Is it is it sort of just fear and concern, or do you have some sort of sense of optimism about it? I, I worry about the children that we can't fit in because you know the vast majority of our schools are are oversubscribed. There's, there's children who are waiting to come into our schools, and I worry because the independent sector is kind of those children that mainstream set special can't take. Yeah. And if we've got more children coming than we can cope with, I mean, I'm building schools every month at the minute to try and cope with the demand. And you feel like the bad guy because we're really expensive and we're, you know, we should be the, the fringe, very edge. But actually, there's a need for those children. And if if mainstream are getting less funding, that means there'll be less funding for the for the additional and the AP and the pros and the, all the rest of it. And those children are still out there. Whatever's happening with the money, those yeah. children need our support in, in some way or other. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Um, we, we, we have spoken a few times on the, this uh, chat about uh, special education. Um, but actually, it's something that does like in effect, you know, the fact that it seems to have been overlooked. Uh, out of sight, out of mind a little bit, you know. Um, but, yeah. um, <sighs> Okay, well, what's caught my eye this week is exclu- well, this might be exclusion, suspensions, and general attendance figures. Um, where, if you're involved in education, you'll know that there's this crisis at the moment with um, attendance rates being much lower than they were pre-pandemic. And uh, it's it's interesting that the emphasis, particularly from the uh, current children's commissioner, is we need to get all the kids back. You know, this is. But actually, um, having undertaken some research in one of the local authorities that I, I support, uh, it's it's much more complicated than just getting kids back. Yeah. You know? um, and I think that, uh, I mean, we were talking before we pressed the record button that I do hear a lot of uh, older secondary school kids who say, what the heck? Yeah, I'm, I'm not going to do well. It's all, in a way, they don't say it like this. But in effect, they're saying, well, it's all stacked up against me. I'm not in the top set. I've not been there for, you know, I'm I'm going to probably end up with not a grade four. So, you know, I'm then going to have to do these exams again next year. I don't like exams. I don't like what I have to do. I'm, I'm studying subjects that I don't really like. I can't do them. All of this is part of that sort of picture. But initially, my thoughts were, well, it's just lazy parenting this as well. You know, and and there is an an element. Don't get me wrong; I'm not siding that. But this is not. There are lots of um, parents who have chosen to educate their children at home. Some of them are highly equipped to do it. Some are woefully equipped to do it. Um, but the reasons why they're doing that, are, and the reasons why the young people are not engaging, is not as simple as a parent can't get them up in the morning and get them into school. You know, it's not just about that. It's it's the whole thing around where's all this heading? You know, what's the curriculum like? I mean, the fact that you said you've got some schools that are farms, working farms. Wow. You know, I mean, I can give you now, if you if you can take some of these kids, that would engage them. 
you know, equine studies, you know. Yeah. But the of, LA won't pay for them. No, but it's all of that stuff, isn't it? As Stan says, uh, it's about experience. I'll, de- I'll defend LAs there. They probably can't pay for them. No. They probably, yeah, they probably can't. <laughs> They would love to, yeah. But actually yeah. going back to experiences, Stan, you know, the, you know, yeah. the reason why we engage every week, Stan, is because we enjoy this. We, as soon as we didn't enjoy it, I'd say, well, or our guests don't want to come or whatever, we'd say, well, let's not do it anymore. And I just think that's what a lot of young people are feeling about secondary yeah. education, particularly. But I mean, I've got children I here. We've mentioned house. this before, Frank, that people through lockdown, students, uh, children, experience something of being at home. And although we're, we're sort of saying, yeah, there's a crisis of learning and everything, individual children, individual students won't be wandering around thinking, well, I've missed out a lot now because they've had a, a home life that's different to, to troll into school every week. And if you're not a school fan, being at home and being able to do what you want and, and not apparently being affected much by that is a great encouragement to say, well, why am I going into school? Yeah, because I think the Children's Commissioner is right to highlight the problem, but needs to go, and, and basically she's housed now in the Department for Education. Instead of getting on the radio, she needs to go hammering on some of the doors of some of those ministers and and pull and knock heads together to say what is going on here, you know, um, because yeah, schools are pumping money into knocking on doors, calling parents. All of that's happening. It's having marginal impact at the moment, you know. Uh, something much deeper going on here. Um, There's also, uh, which is coincidental or maybe not the the news <clears throat> that uh, creative subjects art subjects far less students are doing them at gcse and at a level now is that because the schools aren't offering it in the same way or is it because they have certain you know ways of judging whether you are worth worthy or not by the what degrees you, you aim for but it just feels to me that that for a lot of children, not having that arts get out demotivates you. If if all you're going to school for is the subjects you don't really like, even if you're okay at them, then it's going to be very easy to say, well, do you know what? I'm not going to bother going in. And and I always think back to kids, you know, age nine and ten, who were stunning at things like art, mm. who weren't particularly academic. And probably the rest of their school life was was on the areas where they were particularly good instead of recognizing some strengths in areas like creativity, like technology, like art, music, and and developing those rather than saying, Well, that's all very well, but you need to have maths and science in order to get on. Yeah. Well, if you're in the bottom third. Yeah. It doesn't feel to me like a really Exciting experience. Well, if if actually everything is judged on the EBAC doesn't help either because if schools are under pressure to, to achieve so many a percentage of EBAC successes, then they're not going to ask decent students who could get the EBAC to, to waste their time, if you like, on, on art or humanities or, or... Yeah. yeah. <sighs> anyway. That's and then a... we hike back to the Victorian times and we say, you know, this is where education should be. And yet 
you look at the great engineers, they were also poets, they were artists, yeah. they were the same people that they had a broad education, not a focus on one thing. It's we seem to just forget the past, but it's easier. It's, I think, particularly for this this government, it's easier to look back than it is to look forward, you know. Um, and what, look back in the round, Frank, not, well, yeah. not look back at one particular aspect yeah, yeah. and say, you know. Well, uh, uh, well before we get on to Rebecca saying, you know, telling us, is there one thing she'd like to do to improve education in the country? Is It was quite, it, 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 was, it wasn't depressing because it was sort of as predictable as hell that the uh, Anthony Selden's report, um, book on Boris Johnson's time at number 10 highlighted how sort of he would be prepped for a meeting with the Department for Education. He'd then completely go off track and when getting went in there and then would sort of simply want classics to be taught back in schools, you know. And and we've had uh, Peter Wright here, a classicist teacher in Blackpool, is brilliant, you know, and that's great. But actually, you know, it's as if that's going to motivate a child in you know to go back to school it might do if put in a great teacher you know done in an interesting way but on the surface it doesn't feel as though it's going to connect and it's that sort of lack of understanding about what the problem is that's sort of deeply concerning i think yeah i think it's the it's not the lack of understanding it's the lack of re- recognition that yeah. they don't know enough about it yeah because yeah. The, they think they know uh, and it's the, I don't know. It's the difference between knowledge and wisdom, isn't it? It's uh... um, well, we. That's a nice way to finish it, Stan. That's, that's what <laughs> this the re- definition of wisdom. Yeah. No, knowledge is knowing that a tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is not putting it in the fruit bowl. <laughs> <laughs> Rebecca, we always end these chats with our guest offering some sort of optimism or some change or something. Uh, I, I don't know if you had a, had a chance to think about what you would change in uh, education to improve I, it. I did. And actually, we've had a small win on that front. So my my big bugbear with, with the world of education at the minute is about training teachers for special schools. So I have a huge amount of tutors, unqualified teachers, because those are the people who who work best on farms with children doing non-traditional curriculums. Um, and to try and get them QTS so that they can get the recognition and they can get the career progression. It's really difficult to get them through a, an ITE course, a, a teacher training course, because you have to do a mainstream placement. Right. And you have to be able to teach 30 year nines on a Friday afternoon, collecting textbooks. You have to be able to do that to then come back and work with our, you know, potentially nonverbal children on a farm where you're only ever going to have three children in a class and we're not doing national curriculum. So it's a, it's the bar for them to get QTS feels inappropriate for their experience and their skill set. Um, so we've been pushing hard to get the mainstream placement as an option rather than a mandatory yeah, or to have a, a, ideally what I would love would be a special school QTS. Mm. That is you know, because QTS is that you can teach anywhere. So you have to be able to do secondary or mainstream to be able to do special. But actually special is so unique now and it is so bespoke that actually that skill set is a different skill set. So our teachers have to do it twice just to get the same recognition as a, as a mainstream teacher. So I would love it if we had a special school specific QTS that would 
recognize their skills, that would train them in the things that we need them to know about, you know, the autism, the trauma informed, all of that kind of stuff, which comes first. And the national curriculum, yes, absolutely. But actually, it's a different skill set. Mm-hmm. And we just had a, um, a publication from the DfE saying um, the placements are going to be looked at. So, that's a really nice way to end isn't it really in a way that there's a sense of optimism about some shift in thinking about how this is all playing out stan you're going to say before we finish no i've not no you said it's a positive end i'm not going to say (laughs) (laughs) okay well uh thank you rebecca for joining us this week it's been an absolute pleasure and definitely we'll book you in to come back and talk about the forward day week that you're implementing i don't i don't know whether you want to spread it too widely because that actually then affects your recruitment issues but uh, but anyway um but well certainly i'll i'll, I'll speak to you after the uh, chat and we'll get a date and next week uh we, we haven't got a chat we've got a week off next week so uh um we'll be back um after uh what is it something like mid-june so uh thank you for watching for listening and uh we'll see you all in a couple of weeks cheerio